Before we start Constitution Thursday, I wanted to take a moment and talk to you about the introduction to the show. One of the greatest joys of doing Afternoons Live and uh, the show in general is getting to meet people from all over the, the country and even the world who have interest in what's going on on your show. A few years ago, we picked up a listener out in Nebraska who was a former U.S. Navy submariner. He was uh, one of those clown guys that go to hospitals and entertain kids, and he was very involved with his local tea party there in Nebraska and his local politics. His name was Ed Nelson, and Ed was a a really uh, just a fun guy to be around. He and I would communicate fairly regularly via text and voicemail and even on the phone. He became a friend on Facebook and really became involved in the show in a lot of ways. Uh, He did call the show a couple of times, and he was a a fairly regular texter. And if you listened at all uh, to Constitution Thursday back in the old afternoons live days, you probably heard some input from Ed Nelson. Ed passed away about six months ago. We lost him uh, to a brain tumor. But uh, Ed was a very big supporter of Constitution Thursday. And I had asked at one point for people to send me recordings of themselves reading the preamble to the Constitution. And lots of people did. Some of them were usable, some of them weren't. But it was nice to hear all the different uh, people reading that. Ed got his group together out in Nebraska, and they did a group reading, which was spot on exactly what I had been looking for. And from that day to now, it has been used as the, the preamble reading. And as I was putting together the, the intros now for the new show here, I, uh, I, I listened again to that file as I was putting it into the, to the setup. And it just brought to mind again how great of a friend Ed Nelson was, not just to me, but to the show as well, and how much uh, those of us who knew him miss him. And so I wanted to let you know that um, this particular iteration of, of Constitution Thursday is dedicated to the memory of Ed Nelson, who was a great man. He was a submariner, a patriot, and a lover of Constitution Thursday. Ed, we love you, and we miss you very much, and thanks for being such a good friend. Dave, I hope I can get through this, but I want to thank you and your lovely wife for being an inspiration to me. My emotions are not quite under control. I just had a brain tumor removed. And what she went through and is a true inspiration. Sorry about all the soft crap, but the injury that I sustained with this removal got my emotions riding right on the surface and I tear up and jerk up and choke up and all that crap. It's not quite like riding the boats. But once again, thank you very much for the inspiration, which has helped me a lot in getting through it. Talk to you again. We the people. We the people of the United States.
we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, to ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. In the summer of 1787, 55 men would gather in Philadelphia. They were tasked with fixing the government of the United States. Over the course of four months, they would debate, argue, refine, and prepare the first document of its kind in the history of man, an attempt to prove that men can rule themselves. Over the next three years, the states would debate its ratification. This is the story of those men and their times. It is a look at the ideas, the concepts, the debates, and the history of the Constitution of the United States. This is Constitution Thursday, a feature segment, on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show. Episode 1. America on the Brink. By all accounts, the Confederacy had reached the end of its rope. The economy of the nation was in tatters. Debts were going unpaid, while invading troops occupied every frontier and border. No more troops could be raised as the states refused to meet their quotas for men and materials. Each state printed its own money and made its own trade agreements. The simple fact was that all confederacies end the same way, so it was no surprise that the country found itself on the edge of death. Was this the southern confederate states of America? No. This was the United States of America. In 1786. Ask a hundred Americans on the street today what the first government of the United States of America, what kind of government the first government of the United States was. Almost no one will come up with the answer that it was a confederacy. We will hear answers like, well, it was a democracy, well, it was a republic, and you'll get the arguments from people today that, you know, we don't live in a democracy, we live in a republic. Virtually no one will come up with the answer that the Ameri- America's first government was a confederacy. Now, a confederacy is not an uncommon form of government, particularly in the late 1700s around the world. It was not an uncommon form of government, but it was a very flawed form of government. It had a major drawback to how it operated in that the central government of a confederacy was essentially at the will, if, if, you, if you will, of the member states whether you were talking about the Netherlands, uh, whether you were talking about Germany, didn't really, or some of the Swiss confederacies, didn't really matter. The central government was always at the whims of the member states. And then by 1786, the United States had experienced a decade of the Articles of Confederation, which were actually put into effect at the beginning of the Revolutionary War to form a national government. The interesting thing about the American Confederacy, as it were, was that it started, of course, with the ideas of liberty on an individual basis. If you read the Declaration of Independence, it's written by the states, but there's a great deal of individualism in it. There's also a great deal of uh, states' complaints in it, but, but there are individual concerns as well. If you talk to American Revolutionary soldiers, if you ever had the chance to do that, you'll find that most of them were fighting 
for individual liberty, their individual rights as Englishmen. And yet they formed this government that was a confederacy. The confederacy, of course, relies primarily on states' rats, which is why it's so interesting that literally the same mistake will be made fourscore and seven years later. So ingrained in the American psyche is the idea of states' rights that the confederacy will later, in the southern confederate states of America, form literally the same kind of government that the United States of America had formed in 1776. It's intriguing when you, when you read these things because literally the anti-federalists, led by guys like Sam Adams and so forth, their primary argument against the Constitution of the United States is found in the first three words where it says, we the people. Their argument is, no, it's us, the 13 states. We're formed, the states are forming a government, not the people. And their argument is born out of the idea of a Confederate government. But by 1786, the United States was in unbelievable trouble. We look at our nation today and we think, oh, things are really, really bad. The government is out of control. Things are in the tank. But in 1786 and 1787, when the conventional, when the convention in Philadelphia was formed, the condition of the United States had deteriorated so much that it was firmly believed around the world that if the Philadelphia Convention failed, there would be no more United States. There would be 13 individual countries, some of whom cooperated with other, well, each other, some of them did, would not. The situation had become quite delicate and at the same time quite divisive Rather than uniting the states, the situation that the United States found itself in was actually dividing the states. From an economic standpoint, each state was printing its own money. Each state was passing its own laws, some of which, by the way, suppressed individual rights that the citizens believed they had fought for in the revolution, hence Shays' rebellion up in Massachusetts. There were states that were refusing to supply anything to the federal government, whether it was troops, whether it was money, anything along those lines. Some states took it upon themselves to pass laws that they felt would influence other states to their own advantage. For example, Rhode Island wanting to pass laws that uh, allowed them to uh, post tolls on post roads. It was, it had literally descended into a mess. And more so than even that, there was an international component to this as the rest of the world watched the United States of America, which had defeated Britain, ended that war with an alliance with France, and then signed a peace treaty with Britain. That peace treaty, you need to understand that that peace treaty that we signed with Britain in 1783 was not being observed by Britain. Part of that treaty stated that Britain, England, would withdraw from forts, withdraw from frontier areas, and would leave the United States. England had not done so. Why? Because the belief in England was, there's nothing they're going to do about it, so why not just stay where we are? In Federalist 15, Hamilton is writing, and of course this is after the Constitutional Convention is completed, and the Anti-Federalists are making their case that the nation 
that we don't need this government. And Hamilton reminds the readers in New York of the condition of the nation. He starts with this sentence. We may indeed, with propriety, be said to have reached almost the last stage of national humiliation. Does this sound like the United States of America to you? We have this myth in our brain that the United States of America in 17, post-Revolutionary War was some sort of miracle thing that everybody was celebrating and everything was going great. It wasn't. It was literally an economic disaster. People were starving. The depressions were unlike anything we've ever imagined here. There is scarcely anything that can wound the pride or degrade the character of an independent nation, which we do not experience, he said. Do we owe debts to foreigners and to our own citizens contracted in a time of imminent peril for the preservation of our political existence? These remain without any proper or satisfactory provision for discharge. In other words, we owe other countries and our own citizens money that we are not paying, and we've made no arrangements to do so. Do we have valuable territories and important posts in the possession of a foreign power, England, which, by express stipulation, should have long ago surrendered? These are still retained by England to the prejudice of our interests, not less than of our rights. The very fact that the English troops were still on American territory was an insult and an indicator that well, we may have won quote-unquote, the war, but we didn't really win it. They're still here. Are we in a condition to resent or repel the aggression? We don't have troops. We don't have a treasury. We don't have a government. Are we even in a condition to remonstrate with dignity? Are we entitled by nature and compact to a free participation in the navigation of the Mississippi River? Did you know that in 1786, the United States, which essentially extended at that time to the Mississippi River, was not allowed to use the Mississippi River? Anything that we produced, anything that we wanted to ship, anything that we wanted to bring in from the Mississippi River, we were not permitted to do that. Spain told us to kiss off, and we had no recourse whatsoever. Is commerce of importance to national wealth, ours is at the lowest point of declension. Our commerce was virtually non-existent because each individual state insisted on the right of negotiating its own commerce treaties with other nations, even though the central federal government, confederate government, should have been doing that. Indeed, the nation of England, Great Britain at that point, did sign trade agreements with the United States of America, with the individual states. But in doing so, made certain that those treaties were literally no different than they had been under the colonial status. In other words, all of these trade treaties benefited England because, again, the argument that the Right Honorable Jenkins used when he introduced this, these bills in, in Parliament was, what are they going to do about it? <laughs> They're not, they, don't have any, they don't have any way to, to counter this. Why shouldn't we take advantage of them? Not his exact words, but his certainly his exact intent. Is the respectability in the eyes of foreign powers a safeguard against foreign encroachments? In other words, can we deter any foreign aggression? Hamilton writes, the imbecility of our government 
even forbids them to treat with us. Our ambassadors abroad are the mere pageants of mimic sovereignty. Our nation in 1786 was in such dire condition that it was literally at the end of its rope. All confederacies end this way. You need to understand that above all in history. I have, you know, Dave's, Dave's laws. And my second law says that very clearly. People don't change. They do the same things for the same reasons with the same results throughout history. Every now and then technology convinces them that this time will be different. But for the most part, it never is. It's why it's so stunning. It's why it's so bizarre to me that, again, four score and seven years later, the Southern Confederacy will literally make the same mistake. It will literally take the wrong lessons from history. They won't look at all of the confederacies that have failed, and they will attempt it once again, thinking to themselves, Southern pride, Southern technology, and cotton will somehow allow them to do something that no one else in the history of mankind has ever been able to make work. It always falls down. The Confederacy always falls down around the same issues, which is very simply that the central government has no power to command an individual. It has no power whatsoever to do so. It can only survive by cooperation of the individual states' governments. And when they fail to cooperate fully, the central government is left with one of two choices. The Confederate government can either reform itself into a strong central government with authority over the individuals, or it can turn itself into essentially a military dictatorship. That's it. That's the only two ways that a Confederacy can regain control. Otherwise, it has to end. It ends one of two ways, a natural death or a violent death. By a natural death, eventually people just drift away from it and say, this is not working for us, and they go a different direction. In a violent death, of course, the Confederacy dies in either an internal struggle, revolution, civil war, or it dies of an external invasion. This is the government that the United States finds itself with in 1786. The states are not cooperating with one another. They're refusing to meet the needs of the nation, to put the nation ahead of itself. And perhaps most tellingly, they are passing laws that violate the individual rights of the citizens of the states, who believe, by the way, that they fought for the American Revolution for individual liberty. And now that's being taken away in state after state by state government after state government. We see in Shays' Rebellion the ideas here that we have really reached the point that this Confederacy is on the verge of a violent death. And it's under these conditions that the convention meets and begins to think about how they can rework their Articles of Confederation. Remember, that was their original point, was to, to fix, quote-unquote, the Articles of Confederation. Upon consideration, they realized, after careful looks and considerations of, gone, of governments throughout history, the Confederacies do not work. They never have, and they never will. And so the solution is to come up with something different, something that will not only restore the nation to international respect, something that will get its treaty obligations met, something that will 
bring the United States economy back in line, but at the same time will protect the individual rights that the citizens of the United States fought so hard to secure. This is what the convention has to accomplish, because if they don't, there will be no United States of America. When the convention was nearly finished, without debate, really without any official discussion, Governor Morris penned those words that we are so familiar with, we the people of the United States. He did so because he felt, and others felt, that there needed to be a concise statement as to exactly why we needed this Constitution what its goals were, what it was actually trying to accomplish. And in those words, as would later be written by Alexander Hamilton in in Federalist 84, we find that the phrase, to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, were considered, quote, a better recognition of popular rights than volumes of those aphorisms which make the principal figure in in several of our states' Bill of Rights. The preamble, although not considered part of the functional constitution, serves as a intention, serves as a guide, serves as a guarantee. And it's no accident that those words, we the people, have become the most well-known words probably in the entire constitution. As you look at the preamble itself, it serves as an outline of what the goals of this Constitution are. We're well familiar with these, or we should be well familiar with these. First, it's in order to form a more perfect union, then to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. These are the goals. These are the aims. These are what the Constitution seeks to do. How it will do it, of course, will be covered in much later episodes and and has been covered quite extensively. But for the moment, these are the goals of what we are trying to do in 1787 as we consider the death of the Confederacy, which has governed the nation to this point. The first item there, in order to form a more perfect union, seems like an error, doesn't it? How can something be more perfect? It doesn't make sense. Perfect is perfect. How can something be more perfect? And in fact, the anti-federalists seize on this as as part of their argument that, well, then we have to abolish all other forms of government that are inferior to your more perfect form of government. But is that really what those words mean? Sir William Blackstone, in his widely read commentaries on the laws of England, said that the Constitution of England was perfect, but it was steadily improving. For us, and for some, the term perfect means absolute. There can be no improvement on perfect. But that was not the case when 
Governor Morris wrote these words. The idea of something moving further towards perfection was generally well accepted, and to become more perfect meant, as perhaps we would write it today, to become better than what we already have. It might seem like a grammatical error, but in fact, it really wasn't. They did want to become a more perfect union. They were already, in some of their eyes, a perfect union in the sense that they had accomplished what they set out to accomplish in 1775 and 1776, but they weren't doing their mission. They weren't accomplishing their goals yet, and in order to do so, they would have to become a more perfect union. The second clause, to establish justice, seems like a a slap in the face to the 13 states as they were. After all, each state at that point had its functioning court systems. They had their functioning uh, penal laws. They had all of these things going on here, and justice seemingly was already in place. But as we've already talked about, there continued to be states passing laws that violated individual liberties. The most famous case of this, of course, became uh, the idea that that led into Shays' Rebellion, which, which numerous Revolutionary War officers felt like they were being denied the very rights which they had sacrificed so much time, blood, sweat, and effort for. And they were willing to take up arms again against the government of the United States, against the government of Massachusetts, in order to secure those rights. They felt like they were refighting the American Revolutionary War. It was not uncommon for states at this point to pass ex post facto laws. It was not uncommon for them to pass laws that restricted rights, that took away rights that many citizens believed that they had already earned, but were being eroded by state governments. Now, this, of course, was going to, this was a direct shot fired at the Anti-Federalists. They weren't called that yet, but this was a direct shot across the bow, saying that your state governments have not done the job of protecting individual liberties. Now, it is interesting because, of course, later on, and perhaps we we have already, but again later on, we're going to get into the whole idea of the Tenth Amendment and the, the difference between the perception of what states' rights actually are versus what the framers believed that states' rights were. The framers the people, that the, the Federalists, if you will, did not believe that states had the divine right to simply reject anything and everything that the federal government said. That is a myth that is being, unfortunately, portrayed more and more often these days. But as we see right here in the preamble of the Constitution, this is a direct shot at states not doing what they're supposed to do to protect the liberties of individuals. The states were more interested in themselves and not in protecting the individuals. And so Governor Morris really took a shot at those who would be uh, more Confederate in nature in in this preamble of his. The next thing it does, of course, is to ensure domestic tranquility. The idea of Shays' Rebellion had really shaken many, many people throughout the country. This had really scared a lot of folks. This had gotten the attention of General Washington because here was a moment where we might, after this revolution, we might actually end up facing armed rebellion in the United States of America. 
And of course, anybody that had studied confederacies and the histories of confederacies knew that there was a 50-50 coin flip of a shot that that's how a confederacy ends up anyway, with armed insurrection. And so in a direct attempt to ensure that there would be no interior, internal struggle and no attempt by the government to enforce those things. The idea here was that the Constitution, by protecting individual liberties and by protecting rights, would ensure that that domestic tranquility would be maintained. Providing for the common defense had become something of a difficulty by 1786. The anti-federalists would have, and in fact did argue quite vehemently, that standing armies were a threat to the people's liberty. They were so adamant about this that they pointed out on numerous occasions in, in their writings that the greatest empire in the world had been defeated not by a standing army, but in fact by state militias organized along state lines and called forth by the states and then sent, loaned, if you will, to the central government for you know organizational control in battle. And they pointed out that this was quite successful and therefore they should maintain this system. Veteran officers of the war, however, know much differently. They know, in fact, that the militias, while useful to a point, were in fact problematic in many, many ways. Relying on the states to provide for the common defense was an exercise in pulling teeth, herding cats, whatever metaphor you want to use. First off, the states relied on various mechanisms for raising soldiers. The central government, a confederacy, could place a quota on a state saying, hey, we need for, I don't know, pick a state, Delaware, to come up with 50,000 troops. But Delaware could basically say, well, no, we'll give you 10,000. And there was literally nothing the federal government could do about that. That was one problem. The second problem was, how does Delaware raise their troops? Well, you essentially have a volunteer system in which people enlist in the militia, but they do so, again, in their own interests. And I know we have this vision in our head of the American Minuteman, the American fighting, we, we all have that. But that was not the reality of 1786. In fact, what was happening was, the states would have to, in time of, of conflict, which was borderline any moment now, there were still hostile Indian tribes being encouraged by the English to create havoc. There were still English forts on our frontier. The Spanish were not quite hostile, but not friendly. There was every possibility that at any moment, we could in fact find ourselves in yet another conflict. And in order to fight that conflict, the states would have to raise their militias. Well, by doing so, they would generally offer bonus systems. So in other words, you get an enlistment bonus. But what would happen, and this is what actually happened, folks, what would end up happening is that the men that would go to enlist would wait because the longer they waited, the higher the bonuses would go. And conversely, the shorter the enlistment periods would be. This was to entice people. Hey, we'll give you more money in less time if you enlist now, and people would wait and wait and wait until they thought that they weren't going to get any higher and any shorter, and then they would enlist. 
But of course, by then, we're talking somewhere between 90-day and, and six-month enlistments. These guys would be sent off to the central government for organization, but they're only there for three months. There's not enough time to train them. There's not enough time to organize them. There's really not enough time for them to do anything. Then their enlistments run out, and they go home. The second problem was that some states had more economic means than other states did. So one state would offer X amount for a bonus. The other state next door might offer twice that. And so that individual would go, well, I'm going to go over there and enlist in their militia because I get more money that way or less time. These were all contributing problems. And in fact, these problems would continue. You, you have to understand that these, these were exactly the same problems that the United States military had in the American Civil War to the point where the Union got fed up with this little problem of waiting for people to enlist in militias and thus be assigned to state regiments and so forth and so on. That's where the draft came from when Lincoln wanted to draft 300,000 men because they were tired of trying to wait for this enlistment process to work that way. The South eventually tried it, but again, in a Confederacy, they weren't able to command individuals, and so it didn't work. The United States military, the United States Army in particular, would actually maintain this system that would come out of this, this militia system would be maintained all the way into the post-Spanish-American War era. By the end of the Spanish-American War in the 19, early 1900s, the United States Army was so fed up with this militia system and the way that it created more problems than it was worth. It cost more money to train soldiers than it should have cost because of the, the short enlistments. It was, it was an economic disaster. And the United States Army became so frustrated with this eventually that the Army reorganized itself, hence the National Guard, the, re, the reformation of the United States military in the early 1900s, was done for the same reasons that the Constitution, when written, said we're going to provide for the common defense. It took nigh on to 150 years to get to the point where they could actually do it that way, and there's still arguments about whether or not they should have done it that way. But eventually, they got to the point where they could make that system work by doing away with the state militia. Now, that's not a position you hear in conservative talk radio about the military. You hear a lot of discussion about the standing army. There's nothing in the Constitution that prohibits a standing army. You understand that. There is nothing here that prohibits a standing army. In fact, a standing army was seen by the framers as a necessity for the safety and security of the nation. The only limit you see is that it can only be funded for two years at a time. So every two years, Congress, which holds the purse strings, which answers to the people, makes certain that it has full control over the army. By promoting or providing for the common defense, the Constitution of the United States offered something that the Confederacy never could. It could actually create a credible deterrent national force that would cause our opponents and potential opponents around the world to look at the United States and go, yeah, maybe we shouldn't do that. 
Maybe we should think twice. In and of itself, that is a miraculous accomplishment. That was really only halfway through, wasn't it? In what has become the most controversial clause, as it were, of the preamble, it's not really technically a clause, but it's, it's a purpose of the Constitution, Governor Morris wrote those words, to promote the general welfare. Now, this has become something of a flashpoint throughout our history, because what exactly does that mean? General welfare is one of those phrases that, again, has changed with time. We, of course, offer welfare to citizens these days that uh, the government has determined need help or incapable of supporting themselves or don't meet a certain level of income. That's not really what we're talking about here. Plus, there's that adjective on top of that, that general welfare. General welfare, of course, meant in the broader sense that it had whatever the government decided to do in promoting general welfare had to be to the benefit of everyone, not just a select few. Now, of course, this led to some confusion early on. Even Alexander Hamilton, who was what we would call a loose constructionist, who believed that the government operated under the idea that if it wasn't forbidden by the Constitution, it could be done. Even he accepted the idea that for general welfare projects, there had to be a constitutional amendment to make them legitimate. So this would have included things like building roads, canals, dams, any type of public project like that. He felt because it would only actually benefit the immediate area where it took place, it didn't meet the qualifications of general welfare. And so he actually advocated for a constitutional amendment to allow for area welfare. President John Adams would later actually veto spending bills on that same basis, that that while the project may have been worthwhile, it would literally only benefit the immediate area it was in. And so it didn't meet the, the idea of general welfare. And because of the spending limitations that we're going to talk about uh, in, in Section 1, Article 1, Section 8, the idea here was that this didn't meet those criteria. And so it was not uh, the purpose of the government. Oddly, that doesn't seem to be the consideration anymore, does it? Lastly, the purpose of the Constitution was, of course, to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. The blessings of liberty, of course, being one of the primary elements here. The purpose of this Constitution was to, in essence, do away with the flaws of a confederacy, which is designed not to protect those individual liberties. It was up to the state to protect those individual liberties. If the states didn't do so, there was nothing the federal government could do to provide for those. Now, there is a, an element here of confusion in the sense that the federal government, the Constitution as, as ordained here, only applies to the federal government. It does not apply to the state governments. But again, in the idea of that more perfect union is this concept that eventually these ideas, which many of which were also enshrined in state constitutions, would eventually make their way 
into state functions, state government functions, and that states would begin to see that it was to their benefit to also follow some of these laws. Now, again, the Constitution also provided for, in Section uh, 9, Article 1, Section 9, some limitations on states that they had not had before, that the states could not do certain things. Actually, it's Section 10, sorry. No state can enter a treaty, alliance, a confederation. They can't grant letters of market, but they can't coin money. They can't have bills of credit. They cannot pass bills of attainer nor ex post facto law. They can't do these things. No state shall without consent of Congress lay imposts or duties upon imports or exports. These were all things designed to undo the damage that a confederacy had done and to help restore the, the balance between the states. The, one of the problems that had happened was that under the confederation, each state had equal suffrage in the government. Now, this is one of those phrases that you got to think about carefully because equal suffrage doesn't seem like a bad idea, does it? In other words, every state is, the, is, is equal to the other. In fact, our Senate f- functions under that idea. No state shall be deprived of its suffrage. But there's a problem here, isn't there? In fact, in Federalist 22, Hamilton will write, to give the minority a negative upon the majority, which is always the case where more than a majority is requisite to the decision, is in its tendency to subject the sense of the greater number to that of the lesser. That's kind of verbose, but one of the problems you had under the Confederacy was that very simply, a majority of states could decide something while representing a vast minority of the population. In fact, Hamilton points out that a combination of seven states, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, New Jersey, Delaware, Georgia, South Carolina, and Maryland would represent seven states. And if there was a a vote that required a, a majority, seven of 13 would be the majority, but those states contain less than one-third of the total population of the United States. So your seven smallest states could, in fact, decide something that was the will of the majority. This was how a confederacy worked. This did not sit well with the, the aims of the, of the new government. By the way, he also pointed out that even if you needed a supermajority, nine states, you could add in uh, New York and Connecticut, and you would still have nine states and still have less than half of the total population of the United States. This was, uh, this was problematic, and it created some issues with the, with the government of the Confederacy, and it's one of the reasons why, as part of this whole thing, we, we ended up with this House and Senate where we tried to balance out that representation in the government. That was all to help secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity. As Ben Franklin said, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. And with each successive generation, it becomes incumbent upon us to make sure that we not only have those blessings of liberty for ourselves, but to make sure that they are passed down along with the knowledge to do so. Because without that knowledge, how does anybody look at this and go, well, okay, we should change this because it wasn't fair or we don't like this. How often have we heard that? Oh, the Constitution was written by people that were uh, white slave owners, they, that hated women. All of these things that we find right here in the preamble are prescient in a way that look forward 
to forming that more perfect union, to continue to move forward, to adapt to the social needs, to eliminate slavery, to make sure that we are tranquil, to keep those things in line, and in doing so, protect our rights, which, if we don't pay attention, are quick to go away. This is the preamble of the Constitution. It is a reminder that we came out of a government that was designed not to protect our individual rights, not to protect our individual liberties, but to protect states' rights. And those states had it within their power to then deprive us of those individual rights, which we founded a nation for, that we fought England for. It's a fascinating look at the condition of our nation as the convention gathered in Philadelphia in 1787. But we need to understand this above all else. If that convention had failed, if the ratification of the Constitution subsequently had failed, there would be no United States of America. North America would look essentially far more like Europe is today. And when you consider the violence, when you consider the wars that have torn Europe asunder so many times, you have to conclude pretty much the same thing would have happened here. But it didn't, because the convention succeeded in changing us from a confederacy to a republic. Constitution Thursday is a feature segment on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show for the i5 Internet Radio Network. Copyright MMXV. All rights reserved. For more information or to comment or complain, log on to constitutionthursday.com.